Bible this morning, I invite you to open it to a very familiar passage by now. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 is where we'll be this morning together. As Dustin said, we've, we've been reading through this passage for the last few months, and this has been our creed that we have confessed together. Um, and as we've been reading it, as we've been studying it slowly, uh, some of us have been also memorizing it, if you are in one of the discipleship groups that meets, uh, we've been trying to memorize this passage together. And so as we've been looking forward to it, I know I've been looking forward to being able to open up this text together and see what God has for us um, this morning. This is a very rich text. It has so much going on. Uh, and as you open up, just want to provide us a little bit of context as we begin this morning. Each, each week, before we have recited it together, and Dustin did this this morning as well, he asks a question. Uh, he begins by asking us, Christians, how do we live as citizens of the kingdom and thereby glorify God? And you should be programmed by now, right, to respond. You're, you're ready to respond. And we, Dustin asks that question every week, and I love that he does that because it sets up this passage so well. Chapter 2, 1 through 11, really is a summary of the Christian life. How do we live as citizens of the kingdom? In chapter 1 of Philippians, Paul encourages the Philippian church to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's what we see in chapter 1, verse 27. He calls the Philippian church to live lives worthy of the gospel. And another way of saying that is live as citizens of God's kingdom. You see, Paul was writing this letter to the church in Philippi, uh, and Philippi was a very Roman, citizen, uh, very Roman city. Um, so, for those receiving this letter for the first time, their temptation would have been to live as good Roman citizens. Not to live as good kingdom citizens, but to live as good Roman citizens. And as someone who lived in Rome during this time, they would have confessed with many that Caesar was Lord. But you see in this passage, Paul is calling them to live as citizens of the kingdom and to confess that Jesus is Lord. He's calling them to live a kingdom life. And in this passage, we see that Paul explains, the, as he explains the kingdom life, he starts with the motivation. The motivation for why we can live a kingdom as a kingdom citizen. And then he moves on to the, the hows, the commands, the practicals. And then finally, he shows us what this looks like. And so as we think about our passage this morning, we're going to follow Paul's structure We'll have three sections. The first section we will title The Motivation for Living as Kingdom Citizens. The second section will be called How to Live as Kingdom Citizens. And then the third section will be Jesus as Our Perfect Example. So hopefully that will help you structure this in your mind as, and for those of you who are taking notes. So we'll start with the first section looking at the motivation. Where does the motivation come from to live this way, this, this way as a gospel uh, a citizen of the kingdom? So let me, let me read that first line 
of our passage, starting in verse 1. So if there is any encouragement from Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. We can stop there. So, so what's happening in this, in this small section? It is a very brief section, almost like an introduction to the next section. And so I think it can be easy to move past it. Um, for those of you who are memorizing this passage, perhaps you've memorized it without totally understanding what Paul is doing here. But it's important to, to look at it because this is, again, the motivation. Paul is setting up the commands that are going to come later with the motivation for, for why we follow these commands. Paul is reminding the Philippian believers of all of the gospel benefits. All of the benefits that come from being in Christ, Paul is reminding them of that. Before he gives the commands, he tells them, don't forget what has been done for you. Don't forget what Christ has accomplished so that you can live as a citizen of the kingdom. So let's look at the first one. It says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. So Paul here is telling the Philippian believers that if they've received any encouragement from being a Christian, then they should kind of follow the, the structure. There's an if, if this is true, then obey, oh, live this way. But as, as we look at that, is Paul really questioning here whether or not the Philippians have received any sort of encouragement from Christ? Well, no, of course not. We, Paul knows that there is incredible encouragement from Christ. So what Paul is doing is he's using a rhetorical device to remind the Philippians of all the blessings that they've received. Um, so Paul knows that he's writing this in a way to spur them on. And so I, I think one way to read it that helps us better understand it is to replace the if with a because there is. Since there is. And when you read it like that, it, it comes alive a little bit more. Let me show you. Since there is encouragement in Christ, since there is comfort from love, since there is participation in the Spirit, and since there is affection and sympathy, therefore, live this way. So Paul is making the point that their motivation should come from the blessings that they've received. But what are these blessings? What are these blessings that come to us in Christ? And as we see, the first one is encouragement. So, so what, what encouragement do we get from being in Christ? You can think about that for a second. I think all of the encouragement possible. All of the, any true encouragement comes from our relationship with Christ, right? As we think about it, are you encouraged to know that in Christ, your salvation has been uh, completely accomplished and given to you freely as a gift through faith? Is that encouraging? Are you encouraged knowing that since you are in Christ, your sin has been completely removed from you? And that one day we will be united with Christ for all of eternity? This is, there's incredible encouragement in Christ. This is truth that we need to remember and focus on because it leads us to 
that obedience that Christ calls us to. For some of us, as you think about the motivation that comes from being in Christ, you don't have to think too hard. You can just remember to when it wasn't there in your life. Perhaps if you've come to faith later in life, you can remember vividly living a life of anxiety, of hopelessness, of discouragement. Or if, if you've been in Christ by God's grace for a long time, perhaps you can think of a friend who is struggling, not knowing the purpose, dealing with depression, not knowing who they are. There is great encouragement that comes from being in Christ. Sometimes as Christians, we can forget this, but Paul is saying, remember this. Before you get into the commands, remember the great benefit that come from being in Christ. We need to be reminded of that daily. I know I do. So let's look at the second one. Since there is comfort from love, since there is comfort from love, and although Paul doesn't specify here what this type of love is, we can assume that this is all of the love that comes from being a Christian. This is the heavenly love, the perfect agape love that the Father pours down on us when we are in Christ, knowing that we are completely loved and accepted in him. Christ demonstrates his love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the love that comforts us. But there's also another type of love that comes from the community of believers, believers around us that build each other up, speaking a word of truth when we're discouraged, reminding us of the gospel when we're frustrated. I can remember the first time really experiencing this sort of community and this sort of love. It was amazing. Having Christian brothers and sisters around me to point me to truth. It's a different sort of love, and I, you can experience God's love tangibly through his church. Brothers and sisters building one another up. Paul mentions this in another place, this comfort that comes from love. He he writes in 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 4, God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. The comfort that comes from love should motivate us to live as kingdom citizens. As we move on to the third one, we see it says, since there is participation in the Spirit. This participation in the Spirit is referring to to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christ rescues us from our sin, but doesn't just leave us on our own. The Holy Spirit comes. For all those who are truly in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes and indwells believers. Paul is reminding the believers here that they have God's power with them, that they don't have to live out the Christian life on their own or in their own power. The Christian life is not something that we can live out of our own strength. Naturally, we are completely incapable of doing this. But with God's working through us, in us, by his spirit, he grows in us a sacrificial love and humility towards others. And finally, the last two benefits we see of being a Christian that Paul mentions here are affection and sympathy. Affection and sympathy. He puts them together together. Because these are things 
that God does in a believer's heart. God, when he comes into a believer's heart, he changes their heart, giving them affection and sympathy for one another. Right? We, before we know Christ, our hearts are hard. We can outwardly do the right thing, but inwardly we're selfish and self-centered. And by God working in us, he gives us a love for one another, a love for him. It's his grace that changes our heart. This is one of the benefits of being in Christ. So with all these together, we can see where our motivation comes from for living as kingdom citizens. We've seen that there is encouragement, that there is comfort, there is fellowship with the Spirit and affection and sympathy. And he reminds us of these, of these things so that we have the right motivation as we come to the command. Our motivation should not be fear, it should not be shame, but our motivation to live as a kingdom citizen overflows from what Christ has done in us. And gratitude and not fear is the true motivation for the Christian life. So as we move from this first section into the second section, we can have that same perspective. You know this creed. The commands are not easy. But as we hear this, I encourage you to not take this on as a weight, as something that you you ought to do in order to earn God's love, but hear this remembering that Christ has earned your salvation. Now we freely get to walk out what it means to be a kingdom citizen. We'll move now into our second section, and this section is titled, How to Live as Kingdom Citizens. Paul lays out here the model for what it means to live as a Christian in the church, how we should think about one another. He writes, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So in the second section that we're about to enter, this how to live as kingdom citizens, what we're going to see is two things. We'll first see unity, and then we'll see humility. Paul emphasizes in this first section, unity within the church, and then in the next section, humility. He writes that we are to have the same love. This means that as believers, we are to be united around the same thing. We're to love the things that Jesus loves and to hate the things that Jesus hates. We all know how easy it is for our heart to be drawn into loving things of this world, whether that's money or pleasure or toys or comfort. And Paul is saying, as a church, we need to be united around loving the same thing, the same sort of love, having Jesus' love on our mind. After this, Paul writes that the church is to be in full accord. This has the idea of working together towards the same goal, being in one spirit not divided or having divisions, but having the same direction as a church. You can think about, I'm sure we've all experienced a church where there's different groups all kind of warring against each other for resources and time, all with their own goals and their own agendas. And Paul here is describing a united church in one accord, being directed by the Holy Spirit. God has called the church to his mission, 
It's not for our purposes. It's not for our own glory. It's for him, and we want to be united around that together in that unity. And finally, Paul writes to be of one mind. And this this literally means thinking the one thing. It has the connotation of keeping the main thing the main thing. You've probably heard that before. Got to keep the main thing the main thing. Well, I love it when I go to conferences and everyone says that. Keep the main thing the main thing, but maybe their main thing is different than someone else's main thing. Um, So as a church, we need to understand what God is calling us to. We need to be united around the purpose that he has called us to. Again, not having our own agendas, not running off with our own plan, wanting to see the church do this or that for different things, but being united, allowing God to give us that vision together. So in all four of these things, we see that the first part of living as a kingdom citizen is this unity. Unity within the church is incredibly important. It shows the world that we belong to Christ. A divided church does not honor God. It does not draw people in. And so as we think about that, what are ways that we can build up Christ's church? What are ways that we can lay down our life to serve? Where are we tempted to gossip? cause division? And where can we confess that? Ask God to give us that one mind. Pray for one another in our church to have that unity. And as we continue to read in our passage, we see that the second part now, what it means to live as a kingdom citizen is a life of humility. Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility Count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Just let that rest for a little while. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Personally, I think these simple sentences are two of the most convicting sentences in the entire Bible. What Paul is calling believers to is completely radical and impossible on our own strength. Think about it. In our flesh, do we do this? Do we naturally put others above ourselves? I know for me, naturally, I do everything from selfish ambition. In almost everything I do, it's easy to allow it to be for my gain. It's so easy as a human to puff myself up, to think about all the reasons why I'm more important than someone else rather than counting someone else more significant than others. As humans, we have this amazing ability, right, to justify, to view ourselves as better than others. On our own, on our own strength, we cannot do this. That is why the Christian life can't be done in our own power. In order to obey Christ and live as citizens of the kingdom, we need God's power working in us. We desperately need the Holy Spirit to fill us, to overflow, so we can live this life. And you might be thinking, why is this so hard? Serving others 
looking out for others' interests, being kind, it doesn't sound impossible on my own. But just being nice to one another is not what Paul is talking about here. Did you catch that? He is not calling us to be kind or just to help people. Right? This is not, this is not Paul's version of that bumper sticker that says, just be kind. This is something way harder. He told us, if he told us just to be kind, we could probably do that on our own strength. Okay, well, some of us could. Um, others need coffee first. Um, but what Paul is calling us to is something more radical than that. Paul is calling us to a heart change, to a way of thinking that is different. We see that from this passage because Paul focuses not on what you do, but on how you think of other believers. Going through the motions can be easy, but truly having that heart of humility that counts others more significant than yourself, that's hard. That is something that is supernatural. Paul here is not aiming at our actions. He's not getting us to do one or two more things that are helpful. He's aiming at our hearts. He's going after our prideful attitudes that keep us from serving and loving others in the church. He's going after our arrogant, self-centered attitude that puts me above you that elevates me for my own benefit and my own good. And the Bible aims at our hearts because God knows that our hearts are the control center of our life. If we allow God's Holy Spirit to change us, to give us hearts that truly see others as more significant than ourselves, then our actions will follow. Being kind and cordial is not what we are called to as kingdom citizens. We are called to a different mindset. Yes, we are to be kind and cordial, but we are to look at others, see others more significant than ourselves. This is true humility. This is something impossible on our own. John Piper describes this as a humble demeanor that is ready and eager to serve others at the cost of ourselves. So as we read a text like this, we can't miss the opportunity to ask ourselves, how are we doing? To examine, to allow the Holy Spirit to convict us, where are we going through the motions, being kind, maybe being cordial, but on the inside, for selfish motivation? Have we allowed God to examine our hearts, to give us that humility that we need? Again, this is not something that we can do. But we can pray. We can ask God to give us, to remind us of the gospel and to give us this heart. We can pray that God would give us a love for those in our church. A humility that, that really lifts them up and humbles ourselves. The church is called to be a family. We're called to look out for one another. This is God's good plan for how he grows us, how he matures us. As we bump up against each other, as we hurt each other, as we offend each other, we grow, we confess, we confront one another. And by God's grace, this is how he sanctifies his bride, 
And one really practical thing that I think about when it comes to loving others, putting others above ourselves, is that we can't love people or put their interests above us if we don't know them. It's so easy to have superficial relationships, to be kind and nice, and yet to not put someone first because you don't know what they're going through. You don't know how to encourage them. You don't know how to build them up. As a family, we need to spend time together. We need to be in one another's homes, eating meals together, asking how we can pray for each other, encouraging each other daily with the gospel, spurring one another on to love and good deeds. This is what the church is. It's a family. We feel God's love through the church. And at this point in the sermon, I would usually add some sort of illustration, some sort of story that would help us understand this better, an illustration that would explain it more clearly. But thankfully, that's exactly what Paul does. In our next section, Paul gives us the greatest, most beautiful example of humility that there is. He gives us the example of Christ. So as we keep reading, let's move on to section 3, where we see Christ as our perfect example. And as we begin this section, we're going to see that the reason that we're called to have this mind, this mind that puts others above ourselves, is because this is the very mind of Christ. This, is, this was Christ's mindset when he humbled himself and went to the cross. We'll continue reading from our passage in verse 5. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. Paul here is lifting up Christ as our perfect example. He has shown us our motivation. He has shown us how we're supposed to live, the mindset that we're supposed to have, and now he's showing us a perfect example of what this looks like. How do we live this way? What does it look like to not have selfish ambition or to live for ourselves? It looks like Jesus. Jesus perfectly displays this. This was his mindset. This was his humility. Because he first humbled himself, we are able to humble ourselves. What he has done on an incredible scale, we are able to do on just a, such a smaller scale. And we'll see this as we slowly read through the passage. After we are encouraged to have the same mind, verse 6 begins with this amazing picture of Christ's incarnation and then his exaltation. That means Christ coming to earth as a human. And this section, verses 6 to 11, is thought by many to be a creed or a poem or a song. Um, so as scholars study this section, they believe that Paul here is quoting something. And so for many of you in your Bibles, you'll actually see that this part has a different format. It's formatted a little differently because Paul is 
probably quoting a creed that the early church would have read, just like we do. They would have recited it together as they met for worship. And it's easy to see why they would read this together. This section on Christ is one of the most theologically rich in the entire Bible, describing Christ's incarnation, his divinity. So although Paul's main point here is to show Christ's humility, to show Christ's mindset who, that he humbled himself, we get to learn so much about who Jesus is in his incarnation and his exaltation. The first line of this creed starts with who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This section is extremely clear. It is showing that Jesus is God. In Jesus' pre-incarnate state, before he came down here, he was absolutely equal with God in Godhead. This is something that we, we cannot forget. There are so many cults out there that are trying to lower Jesus, saying that he is the first created being, or that he is a little bit lower than God. And yet this passage does not allow for that. This passage is clear. Jesus is God. And yet though he was God, though he enjoyed all of the privileges of being God, Paul writes that he did not count that as something to be grasped. And that word there, it means something to be held onto or exploited for his own gain. So although Jesus was equal with God in the Trinity, he did not count this position as something to hold on to or, or exploit. But he humbled himself. Because, did you notice the word that it uses, count, there? Paul uses the same word that we saw before. Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right? In, in just the section before, it says that we are to count others more significant than ourselves. It's not that other people are more significant than our, us, but we are to regard them as, as though they were. We are to count them, just as Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He was God. He was equal with God. And yet, he humbled himself. He used this privilege, not for personal gain, but for us. He leveraged his position to rescue us. This is the exact opposite of what Adam and Eve did in the garden, isn't it? Although they were lower than God, they tried to grasp equality with God. In their own strength, they wanted to be like God. They wanted to elevate themselves, just as the serpent told them, you can be like God. So in their self selfishness, they reached out to, to grasp what was not theirs. Jesus did the exact opposite. He humbled himself. He did not hold on to this. And because of that, we'll see that he's exalted. This idea of humbling oneself would have been completely foreign to the Philippian church. In the Roman culture, especially in Philippi, 
the culture was all about honor and prestige. It was about lifting yourself up and using any sort of resource that you had to make yourself above others. Those born of a high status would always have a high status. Those born in a low status would always have a low status. This would have been crazy to them. For Jesus to humble himself would have been outrageous in their culture. Jesus perfectly models what this looks like. In verse 7, it says, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And this next verse, this emptied himself section, has been the cause of a lot of debates between theologians. Much ink has been spilled over this issue. And while we won't jump into all of the, the gory details today, we are going to see that, we're going to try to see what the text tells us about what it means that he emptied himself. You see, there are people out there that try to say that Jesus emptying himself was emptying himself of his divinity, that he actually gave up being God and he was only a man. But that's not what the text tells us. And we'll see. We'll allow the text to ex explain itself. We see here that what it means to empty himself is that he empties himself by taking the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. So Jesus, being equal with God, empties himself by taking on a human, human nature. He becomes a human being who felt and experienced everything that we go through. He was fully man. And yet he was fully God. And as a man, he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He let go of those divine privileges, his glory, his riches, his honor. He let those go by taking on the form of a servant. Think about this. Jesus went from being the one who sits on the throne to a humble servant who washes fishermen's feet. He went from living in a heavenly palace, owning everything, to being homeless and a man of few possessions. He went from a throne room with angels worshiping him to being spit on, beaten, and mocked for our sake. That is how Jesus humbled himself, by taking the form of a servant. 2 Corinthians 8-9 explains it well. It says, Although he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Verse 8 continues to describe Christ's humility. It says, Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus goes even lower. Although the incarnation alone would have been the greatest act of humility the world could ever see. Jesus humbles himself even more. He becomes obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This, this is unheard of. The God of the universe becoming man, 
humbling himself to our level, to live the life that we deserve, but not just that, but then to give himself up. To give up his own life for sinners. This would have been so foreign to the Philippian church. In our, in our culture, because this story has, has infiltrated the way we tell stories, we're, we're a little bit more used to this, but think about the Greek culture of the time that would have been influencing them. Greek gods using their, their privileges and their benefits for personal gain. Coming down to the earth not to serve, not to humble themselves, but to be served. To give up their power would have been unthinkable. This is the culture that they were in, and yet Paul is writing to them of this sort of humility. Humbling himself to the point even of death. This is what Jesus did. He was obedient all the way to death. And did you notice how Paul highlights even death on a cross? He does this to emphasize the way that Jesus died. He didn't just give up his life, but he was crucified on a cross. And for us, as we think about the cross, a lot of times we think of the pain, the suffering that would have gone along with the cross. But for the Philippians, their first thought would have been the humiliation. They would have heard the cross and squirmed, knowing the shame that came along with it. This was something that was so shameful, in fact, that Roman citizens, no matter what crime they committed, were not allowed to be killed in this manner. It was too shameful. It was, it was a death sentence only reserved for the worst of the worst and slaves. Over time, the name got associated with the punishment for slaves, that when you said the slave's punishment, people thought of he was that humiliated. That's the death that Jesus died. He took on the most humiliating death possible for you and me. For our sake, he humbled himself lower than we can possibly imagine. That is why we as followers of Jesus, those who follow after his footsteps, we're called now to humble ourselves. We humble ourselves for our brothers and sisters. We cannot accomplish what Jesus accomplished. That was a one-time deal, Jesus accomplishing our salvation. And yet, he sets a pattern for us. He provides us with a pattern so that we can follow his example. We can humble ourselves for our brothers and sisters. But Christ's death on the cross is not the end of the story, is it? By God's grace, Christ did not remain in the grave, but he was raised in power. And the next few verses describe it. And here we see a shift. We see a shift from what Jesus did, how he humbled himself, and now it's going to focus on what God did. How God, because of Christ's humility, has raised him. We see this in, starting in verse 9. Therefore, meaning because of what Christ has done, how he's humbled himself, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, 
and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Because Christ humbled himself, because he wasn't like Adam, he didn't hold on or think of his position as something to be grasped, but laid it down, Christ has exalted him, raised him up. He's been exalted higher than any position. This makes me think of Daniel 7, a a passage that we quote often here. Listen to what it says in Daniel 7 about the anointed one. It says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Although Christ humbled himself, he gave up his divine privileges. He was restored and given even more. Revelation also talks about this. Revelation 5, 11 through 12 talks about the lamb that was slain, who was worthy. Listen to this. It says, when I looked and heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Those were the things that Jesus gave up. Now he's being exalted. He's been given back all of these things. God has highly exalted him. Though he humbled himself for a little while for our sake, God has exalted him. Jesus is the King of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is the one that one day every knee will bow to and every tongue will confess. And that's what we see in our next section. It says, God has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is is Lord. So what what is Paul doing here when he says this? It's it's beautiful when you see it. He first says that Jesus has been given a name that is above every name. And then he references Isaiah 45. This is the passage that Mike read for us earlier. The passage that says, to Yahweh, every knee will bow and tongue confess. To the one true God of Israel. So Paul, instead of applying that passage to God the Father, he's taking that and he's applying it to Jesus. He's saying that at Jesus' name, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And did you notice when Mike was reading it, it said, there is no other God but Yahweh. There's only one God beside him. There is no other. Paul is saying that the name that is given to Jesus The name that is higher than every other name is Yahweh. Paul is showing that Jesus Christ is God. He is the one true God. The one that one day every knee will bow to and tongue confess. Isaiah 45 is referring to Christ. Jesus is Yahweh in the flesh. That's what it means that Jesus is Lord. That is what it means when people confess that. 
we know that one day every single person will come to realize this. This is a promise that one day, wherever they are, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth, everyone will come to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. For all of us who are trusting in Christ as our Savior, this will be an amazing day. It will be a day when we see clearly Jesus, the Lamb who is worthy. It will be a day when we realize how worth it it was to humble ourselves like Christ. When we are welcomed in, when we are told, well done, good and faithful servant, we are looking forward to that day when we will bow and we will confess that Jesus is Lord. But for all those who reject Christ, this will be a terrible day. It will be a day when we realize, well, when they realize that rejecting Jesus is rejecting God. When they reject Jesus, they have rejected all way to be forgiven of their sin, to be rescued, to be made right with God. And so as we study this, we have to allow this text to, to make us ask this question, are we confident that we are in Christ? Have we put our hope fully in him? Is there something that's holding us back? Christ humbled himself for us. He went lower than low. He died a humiliating death on the cross to, to show us his love. And he calls us to follow him. So if, if there's anything in you that is keeping you from, from following Jesus, I would encourage you to give yourself to him completely. Don't allow pride 